0: And welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Faiza Zakaria, a scholar of Southeast Asian history and the environment at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. It is my pleasure to have with me today Jerome Whittington, author of the monograph *Anthropogenic Reverse: The Production of Uncertainty in Lao Hydropower*, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. This is the book that we'll be discussing today. Dr. Whittington is an anthropologist of science and the environment, specializing in climate change and practices of engineering. He's presently visiting assistant professor at the Gallatin School in New York University. Jerome, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Vaisha, for having me.
0: Thanks for uh, for being for coming on board. Um, let's talk a little uh, about uh the overview of your book. So, Doctor Wethington's book, Anthropogenic Rivers: Centers on Large Power Dam, hydropower Dam Projects in the Mekong River Basin, in Laos, funded in part by the World Bank. The book argues that the anthropogenic is a double relation in which rivers are transformed through the technological interventions of late industrialism. And yet, reciprocally, these rivers transform capacities for life and living in ways that are pervasive and frequently unexpected. These dynamics infuse late industrial environments with uncertainty, as well as saturate them with new possibilities for being human. Um, so maybe we can start with sort of introducing you and Laos to listeners who may be unfamiliar with both. So tell us a bit about yourself, your research interests, and how did you first come to know of the region?
1: Absolutely. Um Well, I I actually grew up partly in Southeast Asia, so I lived in Thailand as a teenager. And uh, um, both of my parents are environmental scientists of different kinds. And so it was very uh, clued into issues of development and environment from a young age. Um, And so that brought me to the the region and also really framed many of my interests in uh, sort of topical interests in things that were happening in Laos. Now, um, I think because um, Laos was sort of rapidly transforming at the time that I was doing my PhD work, um, and hydropower was really at the forefront of debates about the kind of country that Laos would, would become, that um, I didn't really set out to study hydropower, but sort of fell into that uh, topic simply because there was so much happening at the time.
0: Mm. And this was uh, in the late 2000s?
1: It was uh, in the mid, early mid 2000s. So the primary part of the research was 2003 to 2005, but primarily, you know, uh, through 2004. Um, and then some follow-up research later in the decade. Um, but yeah, so primarily in the, in the, in the middle 2000s.
0: Right. Um, and I think one of the key theoretical moves that you make in the book is to um, think about the project in terms of uncertainty. And that in itself was constructed in various ways throughout the book. It was uncertainty is a strategy, it's an ecosystem, it's an open ended outcome. So, how do you come to sort of view um, these dams um, in Laos through this particular lens?
1: Well, one of the things that I had found quite limiting by the existing literature was the emphasis on the authority of knowledge, the authority of expertise. And, um, I mean, I think it's quite possible to do um, research on expertise and focus in on the authority and how they construct authority and so on, but I found it so much more interesting to talk to uh, development experts, engineers, managers, uh, uh, about what they didn't know, about what they were grappling with, about the problems that they faced, and to me when when speaking with these people about the limits of their expertise or the limits of their capacity i actually got a much richer sense not only of what they were trying to do but also the kinds of demands that are placed on expertise um in the sense that you know experts are expected uh, by other people by other institutions by social forces to perform in certain kinds of ways. And so that looking at the limits of expertise, to me said much more about expertise than, than, than the construction, the social construction of authority. And I actually came to realize that, um, uh, that, that in many cases, this, the, the, the social science emphasis on authoritative knowledge simply missed a large part of the story about how expertise functions. So I think that was the primary reason why I got into focusing on uncertainty. And, and then because it then became a project of tracking how experts of different kinds actually flagged what they don't know in practice. Um, they, would, they would bring this up. They would mark on it. They would uh, um, emphasize it in different ways or, or struggle with it. You know, um, They would find it difficult to articulate what they didn't understand or what they didn't know.
0: Mm. And I think part of that um, uncertainty in um, that that you need to grapple with is is with the nature of the rivers itself. And one of I think my my favorite lines from your book was uh, that thinking uncertainty requires grappling with natures that always threaten to get out of hand. So when you think about a project like the hydropower dam, um, how do we situate this within the the ecosystem? Is this is I think I think you used the term emerging ecologies um, uh, as as a kind of framework so is this should we think of it as part of nature apart from it or somehow postnatural
1: yeah absolutely no that's a wonderful question and uh one thing I'll say is that I really you know struggled with the language of environment in the context of doing this research because you know the very idea of environment is about this this sort of surrounding milieu uh, or this context in which activity happens. And this sort of dichotomy between an inside and an outside, where our environment is sort of always on the outside, um, to me seemed very much a kind, of, uh, a kind of systems theory approach, right? You have a system and then you have the environment. And so I really wanted to move away from, from that. So I really thought a lot about ecological relations. Um, and clearly, if you think about a political ecology, then the dam is part of the ecology, right? There's no question. Um, it is, in fact, the manner in which um, electricity is generated from this gravitational flow of water, right? And if you think about it in that sense, then all of a sudden all these engineers and technicians, finance people, the World Bank, et cetera, they become ecological actors, even if they don't recognize that what they're doing is ecological, right? And so it's no longer a question of the, 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 the engineering on the one hand and then like the environment on the other hand. Instead, these things are all wrapped up with each other. Um, And so I I really wanted to draw that into relief and focus on the relations that even if they don't look like they have a a sort of natural component to them, that um, they are eminently ecological in terms of the practices. And, um, and this means thinking about the dam ecologically. It means thinking about all kinds of things e- ecologically. And so I started thinking about how um, hydropower projects collect so many different kinds of people. Um, so if you think about all the different people that come up in my book, everything from American or Scandinavian activists to these Anglophone managers to um, Lao government officials in the state, um, international finance, all of these people are sort of attracted to this ecological flow in a sense. And that means that, uh, you know, that, that, that configuration or that sort of assemblage um, is an ecological assemblage. Um, so is it natural or postnatural? I mean, I talk about a postnatural configuration in order to remind ourselves that the, the idea of nature is a cultural phenomenon, right? And that that is being transformed through uh, the ways in which the the world's environments are being changed. right. Um, So if we used to think of nature as somehow separate and external to human affairs, then that's almost impossible at this point. Um, So we can talk about the post-natural in that sense. Uh, But I really just try and think ecologically.
0: I see, and and I think in your in your response, um, what comes up is that through this approach, you do bring together uh, a disparate set of actors who may or may not necessarily see themselves as part of the environment. And I think the first chapter sort of sets this up very nicely because you have a very evocative view of the uh, Laotian part of this. Um, Mekong River Basin, in which you have a patchwork of what you term to be sustainability enclaves—you know, sites of aspiring sustainable development projects that were intensely cosmopolitan, but yet are located in a small, undeveloped, marginalised countries, and um, that came into being because of neoliberalism. And I kind of want to bring in that the the way in which you weave in um, this concept as well. through a counterintuitive observation that I think you made, if one, uh, and I quote here, if one can say that Lao rivers have become neoliberalized, then the inverse is also true. Due to the intensive work to incorporate the rivers into its political strategy, Laos's neoliberal post-socialism is riparian. So honestly, I I am still trying to figure out what that sentence really means, and mm-hmm. I would love your thoughts on
1: it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I, you know, neoliberalism has been such a framework for uh, emerging work on the environment, certainly the sort of neoliberal environments uh, approach that's been pioneered in, in geography has been very influential for me. And But you may notice that the book um, really takes something of a different take, although I I think it's quite consistent with uh, with a lot of that other scholarship, but I'm not that interested in neoliberalism. I think what I just came to realize is how much effort the Lao state and Lao political actors um, were putting putting forward in order to be able to develop hydropower as a strategy. Now, by no stretch of the imagination are they environmentalists, right? But they constantly have to conform themselves to the requirements for doing hydropower some of which are environmental requirements, right? Sustainability requirements, right? So this effort that people undertake to conform themselves to the requirements that environments pose on them, it's transformative, right? I mean, so the thing that interested me was the ways in which, um, you know, middle-class Lao engineers were grappling with how do they do uh, international standards uh, on environment, um, how do they work with international finance, um, to bring investors in to work with the rivers. Um, and then more on the ground, people, technicians were you know, spending a lot of time trying to figure out, well, how do we uh, um, deal with the sustainability issues that um, dams pose to Laotian villagers? And so this effort that people undertake to transform themselves so that they can do something that they want to do, in this case build dams. To me that's the anthropogenic element, right? So they're generating this 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 new relationship. And and it's and it has to do with uh um with this uh with this attempt to conform themselves to an environment that's that's also a moving target, right? It's a very dynamic environment.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And I, I think let's sort of pick up on anthropogenic, which is a kind of a second important um theoretical framing in in this book and um, and I think it, it um, centers both um, humanness as well as the 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 interactiveness between nature and the human societies that um, actually um, live uh, uh, live with non-human natures and I was struck by the fact that you avoid I think uh, Anthropocene as a way of kind of framing this this era that we're living in and I'm' And it seems like, in some ways, the book is a little skeptical about about its utility and sees it as more of a meta narrative rather than a useful kind of a, a periodization or, or 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 description of our era. So, and um, why did um, why do you choose late industrial over over Anthropocene?
1: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so, one of the things that I think is is really quite important for me as an anthropologist, is what's the substance of this anthro? When we talk about anthropogenic climate change, we talk about anthropogenic environments, the Anthropocene. Um, One of the things I really value about the Anthropocene term is that it's mobilized an incredible array of of humanistic research. Um, And uh, it's provided a very important framing for a lot of very interesting research. But I confess I'm not that taken by the term itself, uh, the, the concept to me uh, has been has been heavily criticized for being you know, human-centric. Um, but for, for me, there's other problems with it as well. And partly that comes out of, for me, a general skepticism around an epical understanding of modernity. Right? Um, so a lot of the discussion around the Anthropocene actually seems to recapitulate debates about modernity that to me, um, are, are already um, well, we already had these debates, and then also they weren't that interesting to start with. Like, when did modernity start? Um, what's the difference between a pre-modern and a modern? Uh, are we a post-modern now? To me, these are are basically uninteresting debates. So, one of the things I don't like about the Anthropocene narrative is the the sense that we are a- approaching this sort of uh, e- eco apocalypse. Right, this sort of uh, collapse of civilization type um, rhetoric, which to me is just a uh, classic meta narrative, uh, in the spirit that Hayden White, uh, you know, really dissected the, the ways in which uh, temporal histories, temporal uh, historical narratives, are overdetermined. Right, um, they attempt to uh, take all of this very rich experience uh, and slot it into um, a storyline that that is already overdetermined, right? And, and particularly given the Judeo-Christian background of that sense that, you know, the world's going to end, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just not that interested in it. And what to me is exciting, although it's also depressing, is that when we transform these environments, all kinds of new possibilities emerge, right? And some of those possibilities are very scary. But if we think of them as possibilities, then we have a different relationship to what we might be doing in, in the near future.
0: Right, and I, I think then choosing then uh, late industrial over just modernity also gives you this uh, sense that we are past that sort of uh, philosophy that uh, we can control everything or there is a, a sort of progressive. Uh, is what are we reading you right
1: in this in this area? Yeah, no, I think that's right, and uh, and so that that uh, that term and that um, uh, emphasis comes from the work of Kim Fortune, um, whose uh, Early book, Advocacy After Bhopal, uh, was incredibly influential for me as a graduate student. It's really thinking through that book made a huge difference in how I understand um, industrial processes and the environment. Now, uh, um, late industrial, so this is a question of like how risk becomes taken up, industrial risk, right? And so in some ways, my book is an effort to think about, okay, well, risk society emerges in the 1980s around the realization that industrialism is not as, as, um, as, as, as happy and as unproblematic as, as people expected. Um, but it's been 30 years since then, right? And since we understand risk society as a social formation, then we can ask how that's changed. And, and, and I think it has changed, right? Um, I think it has changed significantly. So thinking about, so I argue that there's a shift from a, a risk politics, which is essentially discursive, Um, to an ontological politics of uncertainty. That is to say, we have now contending with the way in which environments themselves at this very basic level are, are shot through with uncertainty.
0: I see. And I think one of the ways the politics plays out comes out in in one of the chapters in your book uh, on how um, activists from the International River Network succeeded in pushing for a multi-million dollar plan to mitigate environmental impacts of the project. And you highlight that this was not because IRN or the International River Network presented a more convincing reality, but because it problematized rather than concretized environmental issues surrounding the river. And the more I thought what was super interesting for me was the way in which uh, the more the company responded, the more vulnerable they were to exposing their own uncertainty and lack of expertise. So this sort of dynamic, in some ways I find it um, hopeful that there can be a push for change in this uh, collaboration that you're highlighting, but do you think this is a sustainable strategy for galvanizing a corporate response to environmental challenges more generally?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I think not necessarily. I mean, I think that the story here is that um, industry at that time was naive, and they didn't realize that they also needed to play an image game. They thought that the image game that they should be playing is, is one of just rejecting the legitimacy of the activists, and it didn't work, right? And so part of the dialectic there, or the interaction that emerges between the activists and the company is that the company wisens up, right? They get a lot more savvy about this, and they hire a sophisticated Manager who was trained in risk communication and they essentially bring the sort of risk management industry to bear on their relationship to the activists now that's an ongoing relationship right but but I think for me the activists were incredibly savvy about that and they they changed they continue to evolve and change tactics right so they started focusing in on finance I still think the best way to 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 block a, a mega project is to make it too expensive or too risky, where they don't the investors don't know if the project is going to proceed or not, uh, and if the investors start getting cold feet, then that's that's when they um, will will pull out. Right.
0: So in your in your field, world, do you think the state might pick up the slack for 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 taking up this risk as opposed to kind of um, farming it out to to private investors?
1: Yeah, that's always the that's always the goal, and the only reason um, private investors really get <clears throat> or rather the the private company gets involved in managing the environmental risk is because they feel like the government's going to be incompetent and that they will um, suffer reputationally if the government doesn't do it right. But in almost every case, they really, really want the government to do that work. Um, it, It shields them from responsibility in most cases um, and it's easier to just to pay you know, the government however much, $20 million, to handle the problem. So originally in this project, the government was supposed to deal with all of the environmental problems under contract. And it was uh, supposed to only be $600,000. They expected very little environmental impacts, And the only reason the company reabsorbed that is because the activists um, made it an operational risk to the company.
0: Right. So there's a, there's a bit of a, a delicate dynamic between um, the government, the local officials and the the experts um, brought in. And I think part of the book um, seems to admit that there's a way in which you can read this as an ethnography of white men in Asia. And, uh, but um, I think it also does uh, reject the sort of binary where we think of this as an extension of uh, previous imperial relationships or as a form of new imperialism and so on. Um, so how then do we do we think about these white men in Asia? And what is being white in? What is being a white expert in Asia you now I mean?
1: <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> um, you know it's important to remember that a lot of the colonial project across the world was very decentralized. You know, we've had these essentially entrepreneurial explorer types who are oftentimes motivated by fanciful dreams of quick profits. Um, who entered uh parts of the world and, and 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 settled uh in attempts to capitalize on these uncharted territories um there was a way in which the research in laos felt like that so many of the characters that i dealt with were really unconventional individuals and they had a lot of latitude for how they acted right so it's not like there was um a, a highly developed social structure that um, produced very typical kinds of, of people. Instead, what you had was sort of maverick types, sort of idiosyncratic types, N- not across the board, but in many cases, um, you know, people had these sort of um, very, um, I don't know, almost unique ideas about what they were doing there. And, um, and the vast majority of the people um, that I talk about in my book uh, are, are, are white male experts. Um, I think for a lot of my research, and this goes back to college and before, I've been very interested in questions of gender and race. Um, and so that is sort of an echo there is just sort of very aware of that, uh, that relationship. Also, just growing up in Southeast Asia. Um, and then, um, you know, um, so I wanted to mark that gendered element to it and to think about these kinds of expertise practices as gendered but I didn't want to really rely on a, on a sort of gender theory type framework, right? So it's sort of a subtext. I call it a subtext, um, which is um, there for people who are interested in it and, um, you know, uh, isn't sort of elaborately woven into the book. The book has got a lot of things going on anyway, so I didn't, I didn't <laughs> want to add in anything else, um, but it's absolutely there, you know? And, and so many of these men were long-term residents, in Laos, in Southeast Asia, many of them were married to Asian women. In some cases, they had multiple partners in different countries. Um, in some cases, they had also spent several of, several of the people I worked with so had spent time in Africa as well, doing development work in Africa, and then in, and moved to Laos. Um, so these are long-term expats who were essentially sort of quasi-itinerant um, and had found a sort of Home, as it were, working in the hydropower industry in Laos. So the people I'm talking about here are different from the World Bank technocrats, right? They're different from the institutionalized actors. These are people who sort of move in the interstices between institutions and have found a a certain kind of love for this part of the world.
0: Right. Would would there be, I think, a greater congruence between um, these experts and the activists? I mean, would they share the same profile?
1: No. No, and <laughs> very, very rarely, very rarely. So, so in fact, many of the, well, it, it depends who you're talking about. But many of the activists are, um, you know, are are not based in Laos. Um, some of them have very long term connections to Laos. So I profile two uh, very prominent activists. Uh, the only two people who are identified uh, in in the book, uh, Ian Baird and, and Bruce Shoemaker. Uh, both who have very long term commitments to Laos, but neither of them live in Laos, and um, and uh, so I mean, I guess there's a similarity there. But many of the staff for International Rivers are are Southeast Asian and uh, sort of based in, in Thailand at this point. There's a lot of um, there's been a lot of dynamics between uh, these sort of transnational NGOs and um, Southeast Asian NGOs, and those are productive dynamics. Um, yeah yeah so yeah so I think there's a substantially different profile yeah.
0: um uh, and um I think like, so I'm kind of picking up on the issue of management and and um that that's being um brought up through these experts, and I think the the book also highlights um two different ways in which um the issue of trying to live with anthropogenic rivers is, is being managed. Um, one is sort of through a kind of authoritarian expertise, another in kind of a more participative one. And, um, d- and there, there are various iterations um, in which we can um, look at this. So just looking at these um, ways of trying to manage and trying to move towards a kind of equilibrium with nature makes you... Does it make you more hopeful or does it make you more pessimistic about the promises of this, this new ecology?
1: The reason I turned to management is because to me it was very interesting that so many of the the debates about nature and environment were either very critical of the effort to have a pristine nature, nature devoid of humans, or very critical of the effort to control and dominate nature. And to me, this dichotomy missed the fact that actually the prominent way in which nature gets... uh, uh, interpolated uh, in sort of technical activity is through this term management. What does management mean? Managing, we manage rivers, we manage forests, we manage pests, we manage, uh, we you know, we manage um, sewage, we manage traffic, all of these things, right? And so I and and the the manager that I talk about at length in chapter three was a very important figure. and He really sort of because he was such a charismatic and sort of central figure, really made me wonder, like. What is, what does this labor relation mean? What does it mean for somebody to be a manager? What does it mean for them to be a good manager? Um, and it's not just about businesses, It's not just about managing organizations. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that sort of management as a, as a, a, a concept term for thinking about a domain of practice specific to nature and specific to natures that are not either dominated or, uh, pristine. Um, so anthropogenic natures. Um, and the reason why it doesn't make me particularly hopeful uh, is because um, this was a company that actually tried pretty hard to deal with its environmental problems. And they did so on their own terms, developing their own kinds of expertise. Um, and they, uh, it was pretty well funded. And I can say quite confidently that they actually tried pretty hard and they actually put money and effort into it. And it didn't work, right? And this is the important thing that I—that's like that's the conclusion of the book. They tried and it didn't work, right? Um, so that's that's the uh, that's the spoiler there, uh, as, as if we didn't know that was going to happen. But so so to me, you know, we invest millions in being able to build dams properly that actually function and do a good job of making energy. And there's no comparable investment in the environmental dimension, right? Uh, there's really uh, there's there's no comparable effort. And so if you think about the investment in the knowledge required um, to do sustainability work at this kind of ground, ground level, um, it's just not there. You know, it's just not there.
0: Right. And, you know, I, I, I was also struck by how well-intentioned I think the, the developments are, but yet they can't avoid, you know, the silted up reverse, they can't avoid unpredictable flooding, they can't avoid a lot of the consequences that you you highlighted in the um in the book uh, uh when you talk about this hydrogen project and the people most um impacted were the people living al- um along Laos's rivers. And um and and since you talk spot the end already, I can sort of say that uh yeah, the, in the in the last chapter you d- uh, you did state that when when, when you did ask, when is an anthropogenic river? And the answer is indefinitely and irreversibly. So that that is a rather, rather gloomy ending. So maybe just so for the people who are impacted by this change, do you see a prospect of them moving either out of the area or out of the present situation?
1: Um, it's not very helpful on that point. This was, a you know, I mean, I frame the book as a kind of Tragedy, you know, uh, effort to tell a, tell a tragic story I and mean, to tell it properly, right? To, to not shortcut the, the efforts to um, grapple with that tragedy. Um, and um, unfortunately, sort of after the research, th- there's only been an exponential increase in the construction of dams. The effort at that time in the mid 2000s to emphasize sustainability has essentially become streamlined and, and sidelined um, because there's so much more activity. There's no way for international activists to put the same kind of focus on the, any individual project. The dams are much larger. Now they're building these mainstream dams that have caused some pretty, pretty spectacular pro- uh, problems on the mainstream Mekong. So this is a tributary dam that I'm talking about. And, um, unfortunately, um, the only real thing that people can do is uh, is migrate yeah. in search of wage labor, and that usually means some kind of legal or or illegal, quasi legal migration to Thailand. Um, it puts people in a very vulnerable position. Um, women are trafficked; they wind up in the sex industry, or their wages are stolen. Same same thing for agricultural workers. Um, so. In my view, uh, the conclusion of the book reiterates a lot of the concern within political ecology that um, this is an act of dispossession. Um, now, um, this was not the primary thing that uh, I wanted to argue in the book, but it certainly is the overarching
0: Right. And despite, I think, environmental activism, the, the element of dispossession is somehow inadequately dealt with um, in these projects. At least in, oh, right.
1: I yeah. just, and, and so you that, mentioned before but, that, the, uh, that, that many of the people expressed goodwill. And I think that overall that is true. But when it mattered, the worst effects of the dams, they had to lie about, they had to cover it up, they had to obfuscate and pretend that it wasn't their fault. And so I think that the, there is that goodwill there, but don't forget that's always part of the image games that are being played you know um so that the company can preserve its reputation
0: and were you surprised to to find that in in the when when you' doing your field work for this uh for this book no i mean in terms of the the strategies
1: <laughs> right. i mean I, I was I was fascinated by the strategies right like how do you preserve an image? Right. Uh, so I was fascinated by the strategies. I mean, I think that that's kind of the predictable line. If you read the literature on hydropower, you know, um, that is, is sort of the foregone conclusion is that dams are going to hurt people and um, that companies are going to lie about it. So I really tried to take the opposing uh, position and say, well, I'm going to take these people at face value. I'm going to think about what they are doing and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And um, but it wasn't ever for me a question of their intentions. I mean, I think that that is sort of the focus that I put on practices, on technique, on image repertoire, on the risk communication strategies. All of that is to try and get away from an analysis of, of intentions, right? And to focus in on sort of concretely, what are people doing? What's the, what's the effects? What are the tactics? Um, and how do they actually construe ecological relations um, through things like, you know, image management?
0: Right, and I think that and definitely in the in in the aim of um highlighting the 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 denseness and and complexity of those practices, I think the book definitely succeeded. Um, and uh, we're coming close to the end, so I just wanted to end off with like two quick questions. I always ask people on this podcast. One is the what is, would you like to recommend an underread or underrated book in your field? Um, to listeners in in your book network.
1: Um, it's a wonderful question. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of the books that have been super influential for me, I mean I talk about them at length in 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 my book. Um, but I would like to flag, and this is is um, an emerging very uh, emerging scholar who's really writing some wonderful stuff. This is the work of Natasha Myers at um, York University in Toronto, and her new uh, research on plants. And what she calls the plant um is really, really engaging. And uh, I also really, she's got a wonderful book on, she's a science and technology studies scholar and anthropologist. She's got a wonderful book on, on modeling uh, protein molecules um, that is a, a delightful read. And then her new work on plants and plant sensing um, is really thought-provoking and inspiring.
0: That's a, that sounds amazing. I would definitely want to look it up and add Planthropocene to Capitalocene.
1: She's written on Singapore. <laughs> She's written on Singapore, by the way, on the Botanical Gardens. So oh, that's, that's a nice entry point. That's
0: wonderful. Okay, that's a that's a lovely entry point. Thank you for, for the for the for the recommendation. Sure. And um, maybe just tell us a little about your next research project. Are you are you heading back to Laos for, for that?
1: So uh, since 2009, I've been involved in research on climate change, uh specifically looking at carbon accounting and carbon markets. It's is kind of emerging. Sort of similar technical domain for the anthropogenic, and um, that research is multi-sided. So far, it's uh, primarily in Thailand; it's a little bit in Beijing and uh, North America, and it's really calibrated to think about the atmosphere as this planetary object of management. What does it mean to manage the chemical composition of the atmosphere, as this sort of um, very ambitious goal of the IPCC? Um, so, it, uh, yes.
0: Oh no! I was just thinking—you're uh, moving realms from water to air. Yeah,
1: so. no, no, exactly. <laughs> so that's, that's a leap. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, absolutely, and moving from something quite concrete and specific like a dam to something incredibly ethereal, right? This carbon market—how they're supposed to manage atmospheric chemistry—it's um so um, so that project's been underway for for quite a while, um, and just sort of in fits and starts. I actually put it on hold in order to write the book on Laos, uh, so I had started that project immediately after finishing my PhD. Um, and uh, so um, that project is called Accounting for Atmosphere, and then um, there's also a historical element, so I'm doing a kind of genealogy of climate science to think about the emergence of quantitative planetary reasoning, um, stretching back to uh, uh, early French scientists who tried to understand the the reasons why Earth has the temperature that it does, Joseph Fourier. Um, So it's kind of a genealogy of climate science, thinking um, thinking about the emergence of climate as an object of knowledge.
0: Right. And as a historian, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So thank you so much, uh, Jerome, for joining us on New Books in Environmental Studies.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for your time. Um, so we've just discussed um, Anthropogenic reverse: the production of Uncertainty in Lao Hydropower, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. And you've been listening to New Books uh, in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, um, please do check out our other episodes and join in another time. Thank you.